0: So Jay, we are finally at the end of Operation Zero Tolerance.
1: Well, to whatever extent crossovers ever really end. Remember, it's still Inferno in here.
0: Uh, True, true, but uh, still, does it seem a little anticlimactic to you? You know, you're not wrong,
1: but I still prefer this version to Lobdell's original plans for the ending. Which were... Okay, so Magneto...
0: Wait, you mean Magneto, who is currently mind-wiped and catatonic, and or a de-aged amnesiac.
1: Well, obviously he wouldn't be
0: anymore. Okay, so what would he have done?
1: Shown up in the ultimate scene to... Kill Bastion. Take over the world. What? I'm Jay
0: Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did.
1: Welcome to episode 394 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero
0: soap opera. And welcome, as we just alluded to, to the end of our official Operation Zero Tolerance coverage. Yay! Yeah, uh, and this isn't exactly a normal ending for a crossover because Operation Zero Tolerance, as we've been discussing, is not exactly a normal crossover. It's a bunch of different events all happening simultaneously. So we chose this one to be the last chapter for reasons that will become evident, but it wouldn't necessarily have to be. Wolverine could just as easily have been the end of the crossover and our coverage. But uh, this is how we're doing it, and you may have done it differently, and we'd be curious to hear how.
1: And you can do that on your own podcast. Because one of the great things about the X-podcasting landscape is that it's really big and there's always room for another.
0: Just like on the X-Men themselves. So, speaking of the X-Men, before we do cover the end, arbitrarily, of Operation Zero Tolerance, perhaps we should discuss what happened. Previously on X-Men.
1: Okay, so humans are extra mad at mutants at this point in time, and that's resulted in widespread support for something called Operation Zero Tolerance. Operation Zero Tolerance is an international paramilitary organization and action dedicated to capturing and destroying mutant kind, and it's become increasingly clear that destruction is actually the goal, that it's not about, you know, mitigating risk, it's not about incarceration, it's about excuses for killing.
0: Operation Zero Tolerance is led by Bastion, goatee haver and black and pink wearer, and is largely empowered by his Prime Sentinels, which are humans with nanotechnology secretly implanted in them that can turn them into killer robots at any time.
1: Now, some of those Prime Sentinels were transformed voluntarily, others have been sleeper agents transformed without their knowledge.
0: At this point, the X-Men are basically out of commission. Half are stuck in space in a non-Operation Zero Tolerance story, and the other half were captured by Operation Zero Tolerance. One of the only exceptions
1: is founding X-Man Bobby Drake, better known as Iceman.
0: Bobby's been on a leave of absence taking care of his hospitalized father, who himself was severely beaten by human supremacists for taking a stand against the nation's assorted rising bigotries.
1: Archangel and Psylocke, while not caught up in Operation Zero Tolerance or Space, are dealing with ninjas in another dimension, which means that Iceman's going to need to look elsewhere for help against OZT, and maybe even make some new friends. Well, maybe
0: Friends is too
1: strong a word. They're certainly not amazing friends.
0: How could they be? Uh sidebar, I found out recently through my toddler godson that um there is a new Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends cartoon, although it's called Spidey and His Amazing Friends, and it's for much younger audiences, but I'm still pleased, even if it doesn't have Firestar and Iceman. It's pretty great. It's it's Peter and Miles Morales and uh Ghost Spider and it's it's really adorable. Is Ms. Lyon in it? I didn't see Ms. Lion in it, but, uh, I-, I would hope so.
1: That brings us to X-Men number 66, Start spreading
0: the News. This issue is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Art T. colored by Liquid, and lettered by Comicraft. Richard Starkings is nowhere to be seen.
1: I'd like to think that he's lurking in the underbrush. Stalking.
0: Watching. Waiting. Kerning seraphs bared for battle and attack so talking about this creative team though um this is a story mostly drawn by carlos pacheco who sadly did pass away i believe since the last time we talked about one of the comics he did super sad he had an amazing life and an amazing career we loved his work still love his work so i'm excited we get to talk about it once again this issue opens at 2.50 a.m. in a South Bronx hospital. Uh, there's a news report on about Operation Zero Tolerance taking down the X-Men, which of course happened right before this crossover started. And the patients and staff are cheering, talking about how it'll make the world safer. Well, you know, to a
1: point, there are still the ones in space, and all of the ones on, on other super teams, and the ones just hanging around, and, you know, the ones lurking in the underbrush. What? Wait, no, that's Richard Starkings. never mind.
0: You know, in the 616, he probably is a mutant, but this is a good point. Like, this is this gigantic news event. It's this gigantic crisis, and understandably so, because, I mean, this is an international organization with at least some government sanction attacking straight-up civilians. But, yeah, there are, like, a million mutants on there, and they have captured five it is effective propaganda though, saying that they've
1: captured, you know, the the Renegade X-Men. It's it it establishes them as a powerful force to be reckoned with and it establishes, you know, the mutant threat as something they're capable of containing.
0: Somebody who's not cheering as loudly is Dr. Cecilia Reyes, who we met briefly in the last issue of this book. She agrees of course that this is good news, but let's talk about who Cecilia is. Last time we saw her, it was just the barest of meetings. This is really her first major appearance.
1: Right, so Cecilia is a doctor. She's specifically um, a resident, I think, in the third year of her residency.
0: Yeah, she was born here in the Bronx. Uh, Her parents were Puerto Rican. And on an artistic note, she's drawn here with pretty dark skin, and in fact usually is. But in the New Mutants movie, there was a version of this character, a loose version of this character, with much lighter skin, the same way that Sunspot's actor had much lighter skin, despite usually being drawn as much darker. Interesting note? I don't know.
1: Well, and we see the same sort of whitewashing of Cecilia in comics over the years as well, just less frequently because she appears significantly less frequently.
0: Significantly, yeah. At this point, she works at a hospital in a violent and impoverished part of New York City, in fact, in the Bronx, near where she grew up. So she's no stranger to the rougher parts of life. She saw her father guns down and decided to become a doctor. She is a mutant, as we'll learn, but she doesn't want anything to do with any of this superhero nonsense or Xavier or any causes. She just wants to be a doctor, stay out of all of that, and be super grumpy all the time.
1: I would say she is the third most reluctant X-Man. Among the X-Men when she's when she's actually on the team.
0: Who are the two more reluctant ones?
1: Oh, wait, no. Fourth most reluctant. I'm sorry. So more reluctant. Sunfire, obviously. But Sunfire actually is part of another group, the, the group who's the first most reluctant. So second second most reluctant is uh, is Havoc, who perpetually gets gets dragged onto the X-Men instead of getting to finish his dissertation. The most reluctant X-Men are the group that Jean Grey brainwashes into becoming X-Men
0: a few years hence. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Pour all of them, well, and sunfire is one of them, as I recall., oh, he just gets more and more bitter. I may
1: be misremembering that cause i I don't remember that group in a huge amount of detail.
0: yeah, well, we'll we'll get there eventually. What happens at this point, though, is that a stabbing victim comes into the ER and everybody dives into action, uh, complete with that thing that always happens in fiction where they use a defibrillator in the wrong way, which, now that I know about it, I don't know if it amuses me or annoys me more, but some combination of the two. You don't
1: chalk a flat line. Everyone else who read Polite Dissent obsessively in the early aughts knows this as well. Mm-hmm. And she's got, you know, obviously her own commentary on what's going on as well.
0: So much for safer streets. There's something comforting about knowing plain old humans can still inflict this kind of damage on our own, huh?
1: She, I, I love how generally misanthropic she is. Like, she is not an idealist and she is not super cheerful and she is not setting out to be a superhero. She just wants to kind of get shit done and mitigate
0: damage. Come on, man, house rules. No one dies on my shift.
1: But the guy does, and she calls it Only to have him come back immediately as a prime sentinel.
0: Yep, because as we mentioned, all of those humans with nanomachines inside them can just turn into prime sentinels, and depending on the artist, get varying levels of circuit-ish and start shooting lasers at all the mutants in sight. Was that the Solid Snake, nanomachines? Oh, most definitely. It's actually one of my favorite line deliveries in all of video games. Like, Solid Snake in Metal Gear Solid is learning about how nanomachines are behind all of this nonsense, and he just sort of knowingly says, nanomachines. Like, oh, obviously, that explains everything. See, I I think that the
1: best delivery in that is every repetition of the phrase Super Baby Project.
0: The Super Baby Project! Cam Clark, as Liquid Snake, just said that so many times, and it was better every time.
1: Cam Clark Clark's liquid snake is just just chews through all of the surrounding scenery to the point that it's it you know the game is just bare for the last two thirds.
0: Oh man! Between that and the destruction of various structural surfaces of buildings in Operation Zero Tolerance, like there's just going to be nothing left. It's going to be like the uh, the empty blank sea after the vacuum beast devours the sea of monsters in Yellow Submarine. God, we are just referencing pop culture thing after pop culture thing here.
1: But but dated pop culture thing after dated pop culture thing, because we're us.
0: Yeah, that's true. I think we kind of got stuck a couple decades ago and then stopped paying attention to anything.
1: Anyway, it's okay. The nanomachines will rebuild it. That's what nanomachines do.
0: Nanomachines. So, yes, this Prime Sentinel just starts blasting the hell out of Cecilia, because being a Prime Sentinel, he knows that she is a mutant. And she just goes fetal. She doesn't know what to do here, at which point her mutant power activates. And her mutant power is an interesting one. Right. So
1: it's a force field, specifically a shield. Um, it's described as extending six inches from her body, but um, the art shows it much, much more irregularly. Basically, um, oh, actually, it's, it's the functional equivalent of those fabrics that become rigid upon impact.
0: Uh, Yeah, it actually very much is. Um, It looks pretty cool. It's just like translucent yellow sheet that appears just where the points of impact are. So it's not like, you know, covering her whole body the way, say, Skid's force field is. It's a cool visual effect. She also hates it because she still feels all of the damage she would otherwise have taken, which just adds to her grumpy-o-meter, which once it fills up, she can use her limit break, which is just to make everybody feel really sheepish and bad about themselves.
1: Now, she is eventually going to have control of this power down to minute detail but right now she doesn't right now it's something that just activates entirely instinctually
0: so yeah this whole thing is not going great more and more prime sentinels show up just manifesting from random people that they take over because of all you know the nanomachines and everybody blasts her and her force field starts to give
1: Now, before we talk about the plot further, I want to talk about the Prime Sentinels, because we've got something here that we've seen in every single other version of the Prime Sentinels, which is that they're different with every different artist.
0: Yeah, here it's a much more subtle effect than especially, say, Chris Buscello's Generation X. These are just normal people— except they have glowing orange shadowed eyes, maybe slightly more angular features, but that's kind of just Pacheco style. And they just have the barest hint of these ridged cables between their muscles under their skin. It's uh, really creepy, just the idea that anybody could be a Prime Sentinel and that they still maintain some of who they are even visually. Like, I don't know if that's more or less horrific than someone being utterly transformed. For me, I think it freaks me out a little more.
1: Likewise, I was going to say I really, really appreciate the versions that retain enough of their humanity to still be recognizably, well, I guess, post-human.
0: That being said, I will always love Chris Buscello's Prime Sentinels that are just, like, the size of a bus. They're... they're... they're an artistic choice. Yep. Thankfully, everything works out a little bit better than it might otherwise have, because out of nowhere is Iceman, smiling real big, offering a hand, and looking very heroic, and also... Semi-naked, because that's how his lack of costume works. He wears tiny panties. He does. Sometimes he wears a full jumpsuit. uh, It's actually inconsistent even within this arc. So, as we mentioned, Bobby has been on a leave of absence for the X-Men. That started in Uncanny number 340, which was only around six publication months before this point. This dude just can't stay away from the X-Men, except for uh, a number of years, quite a few years, when Claremont was writing X-Men. Iceman was actually the only member of the original five that didn't join or heavily work with the team. He was off being an accountant. I guess Claremont just had no interest in him, aside from, like, a tiny little murder world story.
1: And... Cecilia is about as interested in being rescued as she was in being attacked. Her immediate response is to smack Iceman across the face with a metal tray.
0: Rescue me? You've ruined me! You've ruined my whole life! What are you people doing here? He promised me he'd keep my secret. He promised! The he in question is, of course,
1: Charles Xavier, and he had attempted to recruit Cecilia a few years before. Uh, she had told him to fuck right off, which he had done, promising a as, as she mentioned, that he would keep her existence a secret.
0: Well, anyway, after buying the assorted non-robot bystanders some time to escape, Iceman freezes the entire room to take out the Prime Sentinels. He's gotten pretty damned powerful at this point. Apparently being taken over by Mikhail Rasputin and Emma Frost has, uh, you know, made a bit of a difference. And one of the things that showcases that is the artistic depiction of his powers. The room is just full of all these translucent, irregularly shaped ice walls and columns, which look rad as hell, and something about them being translucent with the coloring technology available at this point of the 90s almost makes them seem more powerful. Like, there's this implied intense structural integrity uh, by showing it as something you can see through and yet is still just so still and solid. It works.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very, very visually impressive.
0: Iceman does that whole thing where he asks Cecilia, like, hey, do you trust me? And she just says no, uh, at which point he says too bad and um, grabs her and they, they uh, fall down through a big hole in the ground, which can only make me assume that Cable was r- recently in this hospital just punching random holes in the floor.
1: I've been ever since we recorded that episode, by the way, imagining a game of whack-a-mole, but it's just Cable.
0: <laughs> what would you whack Cable with?
1: I don't know. Nate Gray?
0: Just Nate Gray is a mallet? Just a shirtless, shirtless mallet?
1: Yeah, yeah, that works for me. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, anyway, down they go, and Cecilia remains pretty pissed off about the whole thing. She talks about, like, everything she's sacrificed, all the hard work she's done to move from holding her dying father at six years old to being a doctor, studying herself out of poverty to gain this education, and it's all ruins now because she's been outed by this asshole. I love that she is absolutely not wrong about any of this.
1: Like, on one hand... No, it's the Prime Sentinels. But on the other hand, like... She's got every right to be just this generally pissed off at the world.
0: Iceman tries to be sympathetic and find common ground.
1: I... I know what it's like to lose a dream, Doc.
0: Dreams are for people that sleep. But Iceman does at least convince her to stick with him for now, so into the Morlock tunnels they go, bickering all the way. Which leads us to X-Men number 67, The End of Days. As opposed to The End of Greys, maybe my second least favorite X-Men story ever. What's your least favorite? Uh, it's actually X-Men Deadly Genesis. I suspect many people thought I would say the Draco or something from Chuck Austin, but at least the Draco is really interesting.
1: Alright, so uh, the Draco aside, this issue is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Art Tiber, colored by Chris Leitner, Aaron Lucen, and LIQUID! And lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And this issue introduces a new member to our scattered team, actually two new members, and that is Sabra. Sabra is an Israeli superhero, she's specifically a result of the Israeli Super Soldier Project, and she's a mutant, and I don't know a ton about her. From what I do know, she feels uncomfortably tangled in American aggrandizement of Israeli imperialism. Um, She's also kind of, she's also a pretty interesting character in her own right. She's got a great costume.
0: She really does have a great costume, yeah. Um, seems like it would pick up a lot of dirt. It's, it's a white costume, which is, is daring. I assume that a world
1: that has unstable molecules also has self-cleaning costumes.
0: Oh, okay. It's like, like how all wizards in D&D are just constantly casting prestidigitation to keep the various I-cores off of them.
1: The ones who don't enjoy Uh,
0: them—that's true. There are Icor aficionados. Like, what about dog
1: wizards? Have you ever thought about that? I bet they roll in Icor.
0: Oh, they totally roll in Icor. They're they're Icor aficionados. Yeah. Have you heard my new band, Icor Aficionado? Like, we killed a gelatinous cube. I'm going to eat half of it, throw it up, and then sit on that. And then sniff my party leader's butt.
1: You know, D and D is an interesting
0: game. Tis his. Anyway, Sabra, I don't know much about her either. She had a cool trading card in one of the sets I collected. Uh, I do know that the only time she's seen the X-Men before this, where she mentions vaguely remembering them, probably that was the Contest of Champions, which was sort of the Street Fighter II of Marvel Comics, where there were all these different superheroes that kind of represented the nations they came from. I believe that's where we got or at least saw Shamrock.
1: As distinct from, you know, Marvel versus Capcom, in which the X-Men actually fight Street Fighter characters.
0: Yes, yes, as distinct from that. But uh, Sabra's, at the very least, definitely a badass.
1: Yes, and we first um, meet her in in this issue, stealing a bunch of intelligence about Operation Zero Tolerance, following which she fights some Prime Sentinels, punches a fucking car in half, which is stone-cold awesome, and flies off to the United States to warn the X-Men about what OZT is up to.
0: Oh, it is so great. Like, she's being menaced by these Prime Sentinels in the car who have a gun trained on her, and she just, like, punches through the floor, grabs the pavement below the car so that she stays put, and then the car rips itself apart because its momentum brings it forward. It's awesome. Although, that said, her whole outfit, except for her apparently indestructible undergarments, is completely ripped to shreds, so take a drink. Maybe some Arak, Israel's national liquor. It's anise-based, so I hope you like licorice.
1: I do, thank you. But you know what I was going to say here is, if you are a superhero or a superhuman who has to wear a uniform, a civilian, a civilian or military uniform most of the time, I think honestly that indestructible undergarments are a reasonable investment because if you are that much stronger than your clothing, you're you're going to face this situation fairly regularly. And I I don't know to what extent you are aware of this, but bras are really, especially good bras, are really fucking expensive.
0: Oh, I believe it. And, you know, a lot of superheroes don't actually get paid. Uh, That said, I feel like Sabra, while it is in character for her, just to have a really generic black undergarment set, is missing an opportunity. If I were to have indestructible undergarments, it would definitely be a pair of heart boxers. Well, you and GW Bridge. Me and GW Bridge? I wonder if he has heart boxers under his heart pajamas? Yes. Branding. I appreciate that.
1: He's nothing if not consistent. Now... Sabra's reasons for this are, are twofold. First, her, her own son was, a, was killed in a terrorist bombing. and She doesn't want to see anyone else's children targeted, which is something that's happening in OCT. And second, as I mentioned before, she is also a mutant.
0: Yep. Meanwhile, Iceman and Cecilia are trying to blend in in New York City
1: and they're doing this so they can scope out Angel Soho loft uh while Marrow meanwhile is spying on them from the sewers and it's it's kind of a great great setup of, of the two of them trying to run along and not be seen and humans obviously not noticing them and Marrow just being like they're so easy to track
0: so one thing that jumped out at me about their disguises was Cecilia's dress did that ring a bell for you
1: yeah it looks a lot like jeans or at least after she she tears it off um when she ends up in space at the beginning of the phoenix saga
0: yeah exactly it's that long sleeve black dress which ends up becoming a mini dress or in this case starting out as a mini dress i don't know if that's a deliberate reference but if it is that's kind of a a gutsy move to be like hey this story is going to reference the freaking phoenix saga which is
1: always such a risky place to go because you're you're running the risk of pulling an overdrawn at the memory bank and putting a good movie in the middle of a shitty movie (laughs)
0: yup i was also amused a bit by uh one of the many bits of bickering between cecilia and iceman she's surprised that he has allies in soho of all places and he responds what
1: you thought all mutants live in one big closet somewhere
0: i feel like scott lobdell knew exactly what he was doing with that line
1: well lobdell was the one who had been lobbying to make Iceman gay if i recall correctly
0: canonically yeah he and you know to his credit he did uh so as explicitly as he could
1: so they they get into Warren's loft, they they break in via a window, and the loft is occupied only by Angie Quayle, who is Candy Southern's old roommate. She's house-sitting for Warren, and I feel like we should go back and remind everyone who Candy Southern is, because not everyone listens to Cerebrocast, the, the home of, of, of the, the Bring Back Candy Southern movement. Um, Candy was Warren's girlfriend way, way back in the days when he was on X Factor, and some years before then as well. I think she was during the Defenders era, too. Mm-hmm. Um, she was awesome, she was a- she seemed- she seemed like a lovely person. She was killed by Cameron Hodge in the lead-up to Extinction Agenda.
0: Yep, that was what caused Warren to behead Cameron Hodge. Not that that stopped Hodge, like, at all.
1: Uh, somewhere out there, the severed head of Cameron Hodge is still plotting something.
0: Mm-hmm, very much so. I'm just imagining it going through the ruins of Genosha like Pac-Man, just night 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 and eating little bits of rubble.
1: Oh, Oh, I've never felt so affectionate towards it.
0: Right? So, Angie Quail, I looked her up because I was wondering if this was some tragic murder of a beloved character, like we saw with, say, Candy Southern, or like we saw with Sarah Gray when she was uh, resurrected by the Phalanx after being murdered.
1: Nope, this is her one and only appearance. Angie Quail exists to seem cool briefly and then turn into a Prime Sentinel.
0: And to have a bird name, which is, I guess, why Warren Worthington, the third actual hawk, invited her to watch his pad?
1: Oh, damn, but you wouldn't expect that with someone with the last name Quail.
0: Uh, yeah, Quail are kind of shitty birds. I, uh, I used to live with a bunch of Quail, my stepmom had them. They, they were not smart, and they crapped everywhere, and I was not a fan.
1: They're not good indoor pets.
0: No, no, they're really not. Neither is Angie Quail, I mean, she turned into a freaking prime sentinel.
1: But did she fly into walls?
0: I'm going to say yes.
1: So before Angie's transformation, Iceman spends a while trying to reach various X-Men characters via phone. Nobody's answering, you know, true to form, um, at Muir Island. And directory assistance, alas, does not have a listing for Nate Gray. Probably because he is always crashing on the couch of whichever attractive woman has found him nearly dead this week.
0: Dial S for shirtless.
1: Well, that runs the risk of getting you, Angel.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, good point. That'll be ambiguous.
1: and probably some other characters too. yeah, like like the, the, with, with that, it's it's just roulette between um Archangel Nate Gray and Dalton.
0: <laughs> Pain don't hurt.
1: And to be fair, they are interchangeable in some ways, but not the relevant ones. So anyway, yeah, Angie is a prime sentinel, and somehow her ability to counterpowers extends to turning Bobby's off entirely. That is new, and it's not something we're going to see again.
0: Thankfully, a blast from the past who actually has appeared more than in this very issue shows up and saves everybody.
1: That is actually another character specifically from Archangel's past. That is Charlotte Jones. The one good cop in a in a corrupt city. There's probably like two, but still. Um and she saves everyone by exploiting the Prime Sentinel's one established weakness, guns.
0: Yep. She says she's going to take them to where it's safe, to the police precinct. But in fact, Operation Zero Tolerance has taken over the place unbeknownst to our heroes. Right, she
1: is turning them over to OZT because OZT has her kid hostage.
0: Oh no, Timmy! Timmy was an adorable Moppet, presumably still is! I mean, he's even named Timmy. Right? He was really cute back in X-Factor though, for real.
1: So... We don't know how Bastion found her and Timmy. On one hand, it could have been through Xavier's files. On the other hand, she's known; she's a known associate of the X-Men. Like, this this is fairly public knowledge, or at least government knowledge, that he'd be able to get to fairly easily. So, Cecilia and Iceman prepare to take on a precinct full of, of um, Prime Sentinels, and outside, Mero gets ready to fight some cops, as Mero is wont to do. And back at OZT headquarters... Bastion still has Xavier prisoner, and he tries to goad Xavier into using his powers, which Xavier, of course, doesn't have in the aftermath of Onslaught. And what Xavier says, though, really interests me because it's something that we talked about in reference to Bastion bringing Jubilee around with him for a while, which is that he thinks that Bastion secretly wants Xavier to be able to stop him.
0: Yeah, uh, Bastion, of course, is very annoyed and will not hear any of this, but doesn't exactly convincingly deny it.
1: Yeah, he just sort of huffs and evades. And he, in fact, evades his way into X-Men number 68, Heart of the Matter.
0: This issue is plotted by Scott Lobdell, scripted by Steve Siegel, a name we'll see a lot more of soon, penciled by Pasquale Ferry, inked by Art Bear, colored by Chris Lichner, Aaron Lucen, and Liquid Graphics, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Albert Duchesne. Steve Siegel is actually going to be the new uncanny X-Men writer as soon as Scott Lobdell leaves. So very shortly after this issue comes out. Let's talk about the cover before we start. Talking about references to classic X-Men stuff, this cover, stop me if you've heard this one, is Marrow with her back to a wall, angrily facing the viewer in front of two wanted posters for Iceman and Cecilia Reyes. It's obviously very evocative of that famous Days of Future past. past. Cover exactly, yeah. The line at this time was pushing Marrow hard as this incoming X Man, and I'm I'm okay with that. I, I think I'm very okay with that.
1: Agreed. Something I like about this arc and Pacheco's version of Marrow in particular, slightly less so Fairies, um, is that his Marrow is still very monstrous.
0: See, I think Fairy does that even better than Pacheco here. Like, Fairy's marrow is still kind of sexified, but her protruding bones are more body horrorish. They're less symmetrical. There's this bone spur just sticking out of the side of her head, for instance, on one side. Uh, side note on that, Jay, have you noticed that a lot of marrow's bone protrusions have those kind of femur joint ends at the end? Yep. Yeah, it's like your standard dog bone, right? Uh, it kind of reminds me of um, Mortal Kombat, where some of their fatalities in the early games just involved having somebody explode into like a pile of femurs and occasionally more than one rib cage.
1: Oh yeah, that's that's standard for human bodies. The average human body has about forty-one femurs and two rib cages.
0: Oh man, marrow has even more. Also, two hearts. <laughs> Here we meet officers Aguinal and Cleveland, two cops each with their own names and backstories. One, a brash new recruit, the
1: other, a wizened veteran, possibly on his last day before retirement. They don't say, but I'm willing to bet.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, and as we have learned in many years of reading X Men, if you are a minor side character and you get a name and a little bit about your past, you're basically fucked. And it looks like that's going to happen because they're confronted by Marrow, noted murderer Marrow. But, but she's, she's learned about pacifism from Spider Man. Uh, she did learn a tiny, tiny bit about pacifism from Spider Man. Yes, and possibly how to poop. And possibly how to poop. He's he's actually got a, a degree in instruction for that field.
1: Oh man, I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but there was a viral video going around. It was it was um someone's someone's someone who posted on TikTok, which was this mother who had um. Basically was at her wits end with toilet training um, and finally hired someone on Cameo, an actor on Cameo, to dress up as Spider-Man and tell her son that it was not dangerous to poop in the toilet. Perfect, yes. It was amazing. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> we'll uh we we'll link to that uh, i i guess it's still around i'll find <laughs> it it's it's really really charming <laughs> tis yes Um uh, anyway all of that very much aside mero does just knock these guards out uh they'll actually run into her again in about a dozen issues weirdly she lampshades the lack of murder a little bit here in her own internal monologue
1: thought did cross my mind but something stopped me gonna have to figure out what and exercise it
0: It's uh, the fact that you're slated to be an X-Man, Sarah. They're trying to make you uh, a little less horrifying and unsympathetic.
1: God damn it. This is why we can't have nice things.
0: Right. So, the attentive listener may remember, as we discussed recently, that Marrow really should by all rights be dead by now. Storm literally ripped out her heart after Marrow attached a bomb to it or something? Which led to my favorite retcon, maybe of all time, namely...
1: It's okay, she had another one.
0: Yep, yep, she's a little bit Gallifreyan. She had, in addition to all of her bone spurs, a second heart, which may or may not have been made of bone. Stone crabs have two penises. Oh. Are they made of bone?
1: Not that I know of. Yeah, I I don't think stone crabs have bones, I think they just have chitin.
0: Ah, chitin. Excellent. Uh, anyway, stone crab penises, penis, I guess, aside, uh... Marrow's fine, thanks to a somehow Palpatine returned kind of explanation, and uh, she is working her way through the police station. Charlotte Jones, meanwhile, is worried about her second heart, that of her son, Timmy. I actually genuinely appreciate how Steve Siegel is taking this silly plot point of Mero's backup heart and kind of making it poignant through use of metaphor and connecting scenes and characters to each other. It's pretty deft.
1: It really, really is. Um, Siegel does a great job on this issue
0: speaking of steve siegel uh, i first encountered him through a series called house of secrets that he created he did with teddy christensen back Likewise. in the nineties. it's stellar he also did it's a bird also stellar he's a good writer i know his run doesn't end up working out very well due to lots of editorial interference uh same with joe kelly at the time but uh i'm still looking forward to covering it
1: yeah same i now i now i just want to go reread house of secrets though
0: I recommend it. I have a big hardcover. I can lend it to you.
1: You live really far away. It might actually be cheaper for me to just, like, buy it digitally.
0: That may also be true. Anyway, Iceman and Cecilia are still in the interrogation room being watched through the one-way glass by Prime Sentinels. Bobby's just relaxed and amused. He knows how this is gonna go. This isn't his first robot rodeo. And Cecilia is so mad at how easygoing Bobby is. She's explaining everything that's clearly going wrong. She's like one of those people where their response to stress is getting mad at everyone around them because they're not stressed enough.
1: I imagine that that does not serve her particularly well as an ER doctor.
0: Probably not, no. Cecilia is so much fun. She's just deeply unpleasant to all of the heroes.
1: Yes, yes, she is. And once Marrow is in the picture, the two of them just, just hate each other kind of hilariously and fantastically.
0: Well, the inevitable attack from the Prime Sentinels comes as the glass...
1: Shatters with the sound of a soul losing its shape.
0: I don't know what that means or how it applies, but it's pretty awesome, so I'll allow it.
1: It means that when a soul loses its shape, it sounds like shattering glass.
0: Oh, pump. Anyway, our heroes do survive the onslaught, but not onslaught, of laser blasts because of Cecilia's force field, but barely. So Bobby freezes a wall, shatters it with an icicle, and as the place collapses, makes an ice slide down to the ground for all of the non-robot cops and prisoners to escape on. Like, it's one of those airplane slides, which I always secretly kind of wanted to go on when I was flying. Not that I wanted the plane to crash, but the slides just looked fun.
1: You mentioned prisoners, and there's there's a panel early in this when Mare was fighting her way through the police station where there's a holding cell and all the prisoners in it are heavily and cartoonishly armed. They are! Like, they've got they've got spiky clubs and stuff.
0: You know, you can make a shiv out of a spoon and a spiky club out of a sh- shower head? I don't know. I've never been in prison. Out of a club and some spikes. Out of a club and some spikes. Just your regular old club and spikes that are assigned to every prisoner.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm. The carceral system has some problems. The
1: carceral system has so many problems.
0: Hmm. Well, just as one of the surviving Prime Sentinels uh, jumps up to try to blast our heroes, Charlotte Jones shows up again, firing a gun whilst diving sideways and yelling, "No!" She does indeed. Only one gun, but I mean, you know, uh, she she's been out of the picture for a while. She's sort of easing back into it. Uh, She does herself, though, get blasted pretty severely in the process. Iceman starts bulking up and yelling about revenge, asking if the Prime Sentinels can hear him.
1: And Cecilia has no time for this nonsense.
0: They can hear you in Queens. Now shut up and get your cold hand over here. I need an anesthetic. So as Charlotte explains what's
1: going on with OZT, that they have Timmy and she's working for them under duress, um, Mero arrives...
0: Speaking of people who have no patience for other people's concerns. Boo oh, flippin' hoo I mean, she figures okay, yeah, this cute little boy on the surface has been kidnapped. Who cares after what's happened to all of the Morlocks, after what's happened to all of the people who aren't so conventionally attractive and conventionally beloved?
1: Marrow using benign substitutes for swears because of comics guidelines <laughs> is kinda great.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, she she really would be one of those characters who every other word would be fuck.
1: Oh, oh yeah, unquestionably. She would be one of those characters who swears in ways that you can't even imagine yet.
0: Yeah, where like you're like, oh that sounds horrible. Then you think about it and you're like, oh god, what did you just say? That's not okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. You wake up in the middle of the night, like in stark realization of the mental image that you've now
0: got. Uh-huh. And it doesn't take long for Marrow and Cecilia to start snapping at each other even more than either was snapping at Iceman. This is, like, the worst D&D party ever.
1: They don't split the party, though, at least. Like, they, they do stay together, at least temporarily, as they head off through the empty streets trying to find a safe place.
0: Marrow is optimistic that these streets are empty maybe because, I don't know, a plague came and just killed all the humans? She's so terrible.
1: I got the impression that she liked to pretend that, not that she actually thought it was what was going on.
0: Uh, well, yes, but she just has this wonderful dark streak to her sense of humor and also, like, everything else about her.
1: She came to this dimension to chew gum and kill humans, and she's all out of gum.
0: True. Yeah, well, at this point it seems like she might be a lot of humans, but she's not. This is just a Prime Sentinel setup, and the heroes are surrounded
1: Now, while our heroes are facing off against sentinels in the streets, uh, Henry Peter Gyrick and Senator Kelly are having their own um, face-off of sorts in a really enormous bathroom.
0: Kelly is surprised to see Gyrick in this bathroom, and Gyrick replies, We all have to go sometime. (laughs) But yeah, remember, Senator Kelly has been debating what to do, because... He blames himself for this rise in intense anti-mutant sentiment that has led to something as horrible as Operation Zero Tolerance, something that's going to make things way worse for mutants and humans alike. Good, he
1: should blame himself, at least partially. It is substantially his fault.
0: Well, noted hard-ass and anti-superhero force Henry Peter Geirich does not agree. Lose
1: the self-pity, Robert. It doesn't suit you. Besides, the only thing you're guilty of is looking out for the best interests of the American people can live with that can't you
0: best interests ordinary american civilians are getting mowed down in the crossfire of this initiative is that acceptable
1: there's always going to be some friendly fire in any battle nature of the beast that's that's insane talk for insane times so long as things check out on balance i can live with it you should too
0: Kelly basically says fuck that, compares Bastion to a vampire that they all invited in, and goes to have a very hard conversation with the president.
1: I want to talk about this scene, um, partly because it's, it's a really good example of sort of the arc that Senator Kelly's an, on, but partly because it brings up questions I have had for a long time about men's bathroom etiquette.
0: Okay, shoot.
1: So my impression is that you're not supposed to do this, that this is like a massive, massive transgression to, to, to talk about politics in a men's room.
0: Uh, To talk about much of anything, it's really awkward. Like, especially if you're at the row of urinals, A, you never use a urinal next to another person, and you never choose a urinal if you're the first person there that would force somebody else to stand next to you. And B, like, you probably don't look in anybody's direction or talk to them at all, ideally. I've occasionally had people try to strike up conversations at the office bathroom with me, and it's been kind of the worst thing ever.
1: Dude, I used to have a coworker who would go into the bathroom talking to someone on the phone on Bluetooth and continue to do so while he peed.
0: That is not a choice that I would personally make.
1: Likewise! Huh. It raised questions, which again are the, the men's bathroom etiquette questions, because, you know, as, as presumably you know if you've been listening to this podcast, I'm trans, I went through the first 30-odd years of my life, you know, using the women's room, and um, so I, I never really got by osmosis all of the specific, you know, etiquette about that and i still refuse to use your so i just sort of ignore that part Mm -hmm.
0: yeah i think the secret is just to be as non-interactive as possible
1: do people actually wear like horse style blinders or just like hold their hands up by their faces
0: uh maybe some maybe some usually you want to keep at least one hand free but uh there are those you know those walls between the urinals that are kind of like blinders that just come out from the wall okay well, yeah. Kelly
1: and, and Gyric have their talk at the sinks. Is that more acceptable?
0: Oh, that's definitely more acceptable, yes. If you're going to have a conversation in a bathroom, that's the place to do it.
1: It's a really airport bathroom-looking space, just in terms of the size.
0: I'm not entirely sure where they are. It's some sort of governmental building. I'm not sure if it's intended to be the White House or somewhere else. It's
1: Congress. It's Congress, because Kelly just finished addressing the Senate.
0: Oh, okay, that makes sense. Well, I've never been to that building, not being involved in politics or an insurrectionist of any sort.
1: I've never been in a men's bathroom at that building.
0: Huh. Well, we all have a lot to learn. Which brings us to X-Men number 69. Nice. Last exit.
1: This is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Carlos Pacheco and Salvador La Roca, inked by Art Tiber, colored by Liquid, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comacraft, and Emerson Miranda. So, in D.C., Senator Kelly has given his speech to the Senate, and Henry Peter Gyrick comes out to the table he's at, you know, to have a heart-to-heart about how Kelly actually made this— Right choice, and neither of them appears to be peeing in this scene or washing their hands.
0: I mean, as far as we know.
1: That is true, we don't really see what's going on under the table.
0: Hmm, politics.
1: Um, in this issue, something else that happened that I noticed is that Mero loses her distinctive word balloons.
0: Yeah, I wonder if that was a deliberate choice with her sort of continued heroification and prettification, or if they just forgot.
1: But as we go, so we start with the discovery via flashback that Sabra showed up in time to rescue our unlikely trio from the precinct Sentinels, and now they are taking an ice raft to Connecticut, which is, in fact, how one gets to Connecticut from Manhattan, usually. Oh yeah, you've made that trip a number of times. Well, we usually go from Queens, but...
0: Still an ice raft?
1: Still an ice raft, for the most part. Oh, okay, good. And throughout this... Iceman keeps giving very textbook leadership speeches, and, like, his his behavior and his words are very, like, leader-y. And at the same time, he's very much portrayed as not a leader by both his and others' assessments, and it's a really odd balance.
0: I like Iceman's internal monologue here.
1: Quite the team I managed to gather around me, eh? Iceman, class clown as de facto class president. Mero, a juvenile delinquent with a mad on against, well, everything nearest I can tell. Dr. Cecilia Reyes, who, all things considered, would rather be pulling a double in the emergency room. Now we round out this temporary X-Men with a female Clint Eastwood called Sabra.
0: And let's talk a little about Sabra. We have a bit, but she was intended at this point by Lobdell to be a new member of the X-Men. He was building almost a new, all different, all new team, uh, including Maggot, Marrow, Cecilia Reyes, and Sabra. Three of those characters would indeed stick around for a little bit. Sabra really doesn't. When Lobda leaves very shortly, she'll just sort of, you know, wander off and do other stuff.
1: I think part of the reason for that has to be that she is so much more powerful than any of those characters.
0: She is, but at the same time, her powers are super generic. Like, she just has the whole super strength, super durability thing. Like, she does have an ability where she can— Flight? She, she, that's actually not a mutant power, that is a cape that has flight little generating thingies in it.
1: But they couldn't give it an even hem?
0: Uh, no, apparently not. Uh, she does have the ability to project her energy into other people, which makes her weaker and them stronger, which is kinda cool, but from what I understand, that doesn't come up very often. Huh. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit more about where Lobdell wanted to go with this whole thing later.
1: What Sabra also has right now is knowledge of the location of Timmy Jones, which is where they're headed right now. Um, although partway through, Merrow straight up dives off their ice raft and kills a prime sentinel underwater, then leaps back up with him dolphin style for long enough to give a fairly substantial speech. And man, I just I love comic books.
0: It's so goofy and wonderful. And I love Bobby's response to it as well. She's a person who takes pride in her work. You have to give her that. They're ice raft docks at the home of a woman named Rose Gilberti, who I guess was Bastion's foster mother. I bet we'll learn more about her later.
1: We will. Not later this episode, though, because that background will come in a different comic altogether. Now, it's not entirely clear whether Rose is complicit in holding Timmy hostage or whether Rose and Timmy are themselves both hostages. But either way, her house is full of Prime Sentinels.
0: Also, as they enter this mansion, Bastion's just sitting there drinking red wine. Like, what is this, Castlevania Symphony of the Night? What is a mutant but a miserable little pile of secrets?
1: I mean, that's that's a classic villain move. That's, that's not just Castlevania.
0: But enough talk. Have at you.
1: Anyway, Iceman knocks Bastion down to the beach and gives an impassioned speech connecting the current situation to his father's beating at the hands of Creed's goons, and the connection isn't entirely coherent, but it works okay, and it has a really, really good conclusion. Which is one that gets, gets hammered in pretty much every time someone talks to Bastion. And this appears to be the time that it actually sticks.
0: And this is part of why we chose this part of Operation Zero Tolerance as the finale. Iceman says,
1: You claim you love humanity, Bastion. How you will do anything to preserve it. But look around you. Look at everything you've done in the name of that humanity, the lives you've threatened and ruined, and then tell us again how much your sacred humanity means to you. I don't know what you were before you became the person you are now, I only know that you've become everything you claim to hate. So, kill me if you have to, Bastion, if you believe that's what it takes to achieve your goals. But you should know that every mutant you kill, every life you take, every family you shatter, takes you one step farther away from that same humanity you're so desperate and determined to defend.
0: And it looks like Bastion is going to take Bobby up on his offer and have the Prime Sentinels kill Iceman and the other heroes. When suddenly, S.H.I.E.L.D. shows up en masse to arrest Operation Zero Tolerance and Bastion, like they said they were going to do at the end of the Wolverine arc. Yay! Yay! And the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents who jetpack down to capture Bastion are amazing. Every time we see them, they get more unnecessarily elaborate. These guys look like freaking Gundams or uh, like that robot dude from the old Appleseed anime. It's incredible. Their outfits are so excessive. They would just get tangled up in everything. Like, if they tried to walk through one of those doors that had the bead curtain, they would never be able to leave again.
1: Strife would just slice through that situation.
0: Strife totally would.
1: Well, he's the other person I think of when we think of, you know, costumes that are not made for walking through doors. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, finally, you know, with S.H.I.E.L.D. there, Bastion orders the Sentinels to stand down, and we close out the issue with Bobby telling Mero that not killing Bastion is what separates people like Bastion from people like them, you know, the X-Men, and presumably they're all going to live happily ever after.
0: Well, I mean, Cecilia will still be bitter at everybody all the time, and Mero will still want to kill everybody, but, you know, I feel like they both enjoy being that way.
1: Yeah, yeah, that seems like a reasonable conclusion.
0: So this is actually Scott Lobdell's last issue of Adjectiveless X-Men. He started back in the very early 90s. Yeah, I mean, Scott Lobdell has done some shitty things. He was a formative X-Men writer. I like some stuff about his style, I dislike some stuff about his style, but this is it. He will do some more Uncanny X-Men issues we haven't covered. We'll get to those soon. We delayed them because they're not part of Operation Zero Tolerance, though. Well, he's
1: also going to do some writing on the line in the early aughts, I believe.
0: Yeah, he'll be back a couple of times here and there. But yeah, he was aware this was going to be the case. There's this quote that Iceman has about um, promising that this really was the big finish that he was planning all along. Because apparently the Operation Zero Tolerance storyline, the way it wrapped up, was editorially mandated. Lobdell had a very different idea for this, uh, as UncannyXmen.net explains in the summary for this issue. Apparently, there was uh, an old message board post from about 2002 on the X-Fan message board. Brian Cronin wrote about this in his Comic Book Legends Revealed column at Comic Book Resources. And essentially, as we alluded to in the cold open... Lobdell had intended for Bastion to be taken away by S.H.I.E.L.D. and for the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier to get ripped apart to reveal Magneto, who's back, who was going to say, like, hey, it's not over till I say it's over. Uh, Magneto apparently was outraged by everything Operation Zero Tolerance got away with, and that pushed him into declaring war on humanity. And so there'd be this war between Bastion and his robot folks uh, working for humanity, Magneto's mutant forces, and the X-Men would just be trying, like, to calm everything down and stop everyone from killing each other. Lobdell had hoped that with no Blackbird, no Danger Room, no X-Mansion, no nothing, the X-Men would kind of be with their backs against a wall, as they so often are, that that would be really fun— Um, He essentially described this as being the Age of Apocalypse, but in the present day. Didn't happen, obviously none of that happened, but it kind of reminds me of everything we heard about the scrapped Mutant Wars storyline.
1: Oh damn, you're absolutely right.
0: Yeah, Um, and at this point there had been little bits and pieces of people talking about the coming conflict, how everyone would have to choose a side, which really would have led into something like that. And actually, in Lobdell's Eve of Destruction from the early aughts, that's kind of what happens, but here it doesn't. Here it just sort of ends quietly.
1: How do you feel about that? How do you feel about the generally sort of quiet ending to a major event? I think
0: uh, that's a good question. I think I'm okay with it. This is a weird example, though, because with the only remaining early 90s writer leaving, like Nesieza was already gone, and with Lobdell leaving, we get kind of— a reset and if we'd had a big status quo shifting event big like the whole magneto thing that might have made that work better might have made it work worse obviously it didn't work out great because Siegel and Kelly didn't stay on the books for very long so I'm I'm conflicted I don't know that I have a strong opinion in either direction what about you
1: I'm likewise kind of on the fence I think I would have liked to see a more decisive conclusion to this arc, but at the same time, I mean this the sort of non event of it, and what the x men face immediately in the aftermath kind of rings true like it's it most of the time there is no effect of closure.
0: Yeah, like in this case, it's just that Senator Kelly convinces the government to shut down Operation Zero Tolerance. What the X-Men do, essentially, is to survive. They're not all that responsible for the defeat of Bastion or the defeat of OCT.
1: You're absolutely right. They're, they're almost entirely responsive in it.
0: Yeah, and I think that's kind of cool. It does really get across the magnitude of the threat that the X-Men themselves just— can't beat the bad guys all they can do is buy time until you know humanity course corrects a little bit
1: i would have liked to have seen more exploration of the thing that gets hinted at around bastion a few times the idea that he is trying to find someone to stop him
0: yeah well we will learn more about that and in fact quite soon in our coverage uh, as we learn more about bastion's origins so i'm excited to cover that part too But yeah, it's a little strange that we don't get any sort of resolution to that question in Operation Zero Tolerance itself.
1: The folks who do get resolution now are our listeners, and specifically the ones who've got questions.
0: An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Maybe I missed an explanation in the comics, but why does Jonathan Starsmore go by Chamber? And are there other mutant monikers you find inexplicable?
1: You did not miss an explanation in the comics. There is no good reason that Jonathan Starsmore goes by Chamber. I've said this before, but Richter choosing a code name that's pronounced the same as his sp- surname but not spelled like the Richter scale, which his surname is, is, is just deeply baffling.
0: Yeah, you know, he was young when X-Factor picked him up. He didn't really think things through, and then I guess he was too embarrassed to change it a little bit later. I don't know, as far as Chamber, I always figured that just referred to the big hole in his chest, which is certainly a decision to name yourself after something like that. I guess it does allow for some additional moping, which we know that Jonathan Starsmore more loves. As for names that just don't make any sense, all right, Cable. Like, I know they've justified that as, oh, he connects the past and the future. I mean, I guess he does. A lot of time travelers do. And I guess he has Cables as part of him because he's part robot guy. But 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 that's just silly.
1: I mean I know someone whose given name is Cable but it's spelled differently.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that makes more sense. There's a weird example, small one, but Hemingway from Gene Nation. Like did Ernest Hemingway have spiky back protrusions that he slashed
1: people with? Maybe the Gene Nation character is just unbelievably manly. Or maybe he's got six toes.
0: I bet he has six toes. I don't know. I mean he wasn't drawn by Life L, but I never saw his feet very much. As far as names that perhaps aren't quite inexplicable but don't actually mean a goddamn thing, x Adam X the x even when they try to explain it, especially when they try to explain it, it has nothing to do with anything. Uh, And also, to go way back in the same direction, what the hell does Marvel Girl even mean? I mean, yes, she's a girl, and I guess you could marvel at the things that she does, and it's published by Marvel Comics, but come on, so many characters can fit that.
1: No, that's it because because her entire personality at that point is also girl.
0: Then she should just be girl girl.
1: I don't know. I feel like it's active. It's a, it's accurately descriptive of her role in the comics. She is a Marvel character who is a girl, sort of like you know the Invisible Woman.
0: Okay, she's a Marvel girl in a Marvel world. Gotcha. It's fantastic being telekinetic.
1: Sure. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, which non-mutant character do you think pairs best with the X-Men? I've often loved it when Spider-Man has gotten to hang out with or even teach mutants.
0: You know, I could cheat and say Longshot, since he's not actually a mutant, kind of. Uh, Or I could cheat and say like half of early and mid-era's Excalibur who aren't mutants. I did really like the way that team mixed mutants and mystical types.
1: Yeah, I was going to say Brian Braddock.
0: Yeah, but again, if they're members of an X-Team, I don't know if they quite address this question. So, as we did mention in a listener question somewhat recently, I love Carol Danvers partnered with the X-Men. Yeah. She has government connections, but she has a rebellious heart, so there's like that sort of conflict and she can still work with them but use her own resources. Carol
1: Danvers and Wolverine are such a good team. I mean, she's good with the X-Men as a whole, but the two of them as 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 a team up are like a whole level above that
0: oh they're great yeah i know she's just one more example of the many many people that it turns out logan has history with but in that case it super works well he's very she old also, he is very old uh she also pairs well with their space nonsense adventures uh similarly the black knight has recently overlapped pretty well with x teams uh for the mystical side of the marvel universe i'm sure part of that is just that cy Spurrier wrote the black knight around then he's writing x stuff now and he got to merge those together and that was fun but it worked and then you have Puck of Alpha Flight, who works really well with X characters for more down-to-earth and or disreputable style adventures. Like, I think what it comes down to for me is when you have an, a non-X-Men character, especially a non-mutant character, interacting with the X-Men, it really helps the X-Men overlap with the genres that that character themselves sort of fits into. It's sort of a genre lubricant, almost.
1: Wow, now you're going to make the next thing that I was going to list just feel really weird and awful. Sorry? Yeah, no, so uh, what I was going to say was the Power Pack.
0: The Power Pack works really well with the X-Men. And, you know, not just Logan and Katie Power, but, yeah, when they were in Inferno together with, like, the X-Terminators, it was awesome.
1: Well, and in the series that was specifically Power Pack and X-Men team-ups. Unfortunately, I don't think that's been collected anywhere, or it was collected only very briefly in an edition that's now long, long out of print, but it was a really marvelous series.
0: Oh, that series was adorable. Really, all of those power pack crossing over with other character series were great. In the Thor one, uh, all the gods got turned into babies, and the power pack had to, like, take care of them and undo the spell that made it happen, and it was so good. Aw. Yeah. And with that...
1: Jay and Miles, Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com.
0: New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainTheX-Men.com.
1: Check out ExplainTheXMen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn.
0: Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainTheX-Men.com. And please, rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps.
1: Next week will be the final
0: Hawk Talk of 2022. And in two weeks... It's Bastion's secret origin. What is a mutant? But a miserable little pile of secrets. But enough talk. Have at you.